Hello and welcome. My name is Alice, and you're listening to the Backtracker History Show, first on Bradley Stoke Radio. I hope you're having a lovely Christmas. This is a special Christmas show featuring various tales and facts from Christmases and festive times past. So sit back and relax. The festive season tends to make people very generous, and the plight of others, less fortunate, becomes highlighted. Just look at the song, Do They Know It's Christmas, as an example. So you wouldn't be surprised to know that over the years, many letters have been sent to various newspaper editors, trying to shine a light on situations that have been discovered and the public feels need special attention. Take this letter, for example, from Beatrice Thompson in Clifton, Bristol. From the Western Daily Press of December 1914. Sir... Some week or ago, you were kind enough to insert in your valuable paper a request from Mrs Lambert and myself, asking our fellow citizens who are making their Christmas puddings, spare one or more for Bristol soldiers, who will not be able to spend Christmas Day with their families. I write now to remind all those who are going to help that I want them at my house not later than Saturday 12th. I will gladly acknowledge them with names tied on saying who the donors are. Yours truly, Beatrice Thompson, Clifton. One of the early instigators for the Christmas Puddings for Soldiers idea was the Sheffield Telegraph, with the approval of the Army Council. It opened a shilling fund for the purpose of providing Christmas puddings for soldiers from the Sheffield district, who were fighting in France, the Balkans, Egypt, East Africa and Mesopotamia. They hoped that every reader of the paper would send a contribution, however modest, and by that means send a message of remembrance and goodwill to the boys who were so splendidly upholding their cause, both east and west. In the end, they estimated that a total number was raised to cater for as many as 60,000 men. And here's some more Christmas facts to impress your family and friends. While Christmas celebrates the birth of Jesus Christ, there is no mention of December 25th in the Bible. Most historians actually think that Jesus was born in the spring, and his birthday itself didn't become the official holiday until the 3rd century. Some historians believe the date was actually chosen because it coincided with the pagan festival of Saturnalia, which honoured the agricultural god Saturn, who was celebrating and gift-giving. If you think your Christmas dinners are big, well, here's a story from 1377, when, during a Christmas feast hosted by King Richard II of England, 300 sheep and 28 oxen were consumed. And here's a little warning, it's technically illegal to eat mince pies on Christmas Day in England. In the 17th century, Oliver Cromwell banned Christmas pudding, mince pies and anything to do with gluttony. The law has never been rescinded.
now, I've got a real treat for you, because we're not just having one word, we're going to have several. So here we go. Word of the week. Brace yourselves for a string of Christmas-tastic words. And your first one is... Hogamadog, which is a huge ball of snow built up by rolling a small ball of snow around a snowfield. The next is a 16th century word for fantastic food or a grand feast. And the word is belly cheer. And the last one in this section, Yule Hole, which is the hole you have to move your belt buckle along to after you've eaten an enormous Christmas dinner. Here's a touching story. It's called A Case for Sympathy. In his official duties as postmaster and surveyor of Bristol, on the 19th of December, 1896, Mr. R.C. Thomas had cause to visit Mangotsfield one Saturday, as he was passing over Rodway Common, going from the train station to the village, he encountered a little girl of about nine years old. He noticed that she was obviously from a poor household, as she was so scantily clad in a thin shawl worn over her head, having to do the duty of a warm jacket and hat. The weather was very cold, and no place could have been colder than the open Rodway Common, fiercely swept by the biting blast of the vicious December wind. This is what he recalled in a letter to the Bristol Mercury, asking for help. The child handed me a paper and with strangely appealing eyes bade me to read it. I did so and found that it was an appeal for subscriptions towards the internment of the child's father, who had suddenly dropped down dead and was to be buried that afternoon. On inquiry at the village I found that the case was genuine and extremely sad. The poor widow thus deprived in a moment of her main support is left to battle in the world with seven little children depending upon her, the oldest being the little girl whom I had met. Apart from the question of burial, there remains that of support. The woman is said to be an industrious person, but will be put to the direst straits at the commencement of her widowed career, and it will be a hard matter to feed the mouths of the seven little orphans. May I ask, therefore, generous dwellers in our philanthropic city of Bristol, to think of this exceptionally sad case occurring so near to that season when families are looking forward to be reunited and to spend a happy Christmas. Modder River, Monday, 12.10pm. Preparations for the celebration of Christmas are proceeding. A church parade of all arms was held early this morning. The troops are now busy preparing their Christmas dinner. Long patrols have been sent out and outposts have been strengthened in case the Boers take advantage of the festivities to make a move. The heat yesterday and today was intense. The enemy so far have abstained from annoying us with futile shell fire, but the naval detachment is keeping strict watch on their movements. At the slightest sign of aggressive action on their part, the naval big gun drops a shell with marvellous accuracy on the exact spot. Modder River, 4.45pm. At midday the whole of the troops were paraded in their respective camps and gave three ringing cheers for Her Majesty, whose gracious message was received with enthusiasm. The Boers have arranged for the observance of a truce day. 
Modder River, December 27th. About 3pm the Boers opened fire with two guns apparently disappearing. They directed their fire which was accurate at our naval guns. Our 12 pounders replied most accurately but the enemy's guns could not be seen afterwards. A third Boer gun posted to the west of the railway also opened fire. There were no casualties on our side. You just heard a dispatch published in the Bristol Mercury on Monday the 1st of January 1900 describing what life was like in the Boer War during the festive season. News just in. We've just heard that Santa's reindeer were allowed to travel on Christmas Eve. Why? Because they have herd immunity. And now with 2021 on the horizon, I thought I'd give you a few stories from New Year's Day gone by. Like this one, for example. On New Year's Day in 1850, a porter delivered to a lady residing at 45 Rue de Verbois in France a package containing pastry and bonbons, which had been handed to him by a gentleman he didn't know. Without giving herself any concern as to the giver of the present, the lady immediately started eating the articles and distributed them with some of her friends who were present. In a very short time after, the whole of them had violent pains. A medical man who was sent for immediately pronounced that they had taken some poisonous substance and administered antidotes. One of the women of the party was afterwards taken to the Hotel Dieu, where she soon died afterwards. A third, who had great difficulty in reaching her home, expired soon afterwards in great agony. Two others, although seriously affected, were in a fair way to recovery. The remainder of the articles were examined and found to contain a large quantity of arsenic. And now let me tell you how Bristol ushered in the new year in 1938. There were many dances and other celebrations and churches held solemn night services among them being the one at the Lord Mayor's Chapel, attended by theatrical and circus people who were residing in the city at the time. Scots at the Caledonian Society's Hogmanay Ball at the Royal Hotel ushered in the haggis and the New Year pipers piped and Old Lang Syne was sung. And amid the clamour of bells and sirens, cheering parties thronged the streets and sang Old Lang Syne. At the Victoria Room in Clifton, more than 750 dancers attended the New Year's Eve ball and they danced to the music of Henry Hall's band. The dance was in aid of the Benevolent and Pensions Fund for the Institute of Journalists and it was organised by the Bristol District of the Institute in cooperation with Mr Charles Lockyer and by the courtesy of Chris Charlton who had booked the Victoria Rooms for the whole of the week for his popular magic show. The dance began at 11 o'clock and between the end of Chris Charlton's show and the beginning of Henry Hall's dance band, a small army of workmen under the supervision of the hall manager converted the concert hall 
into a ballroom. Then Henry Hall and his band dashed up from their performance at the second house of the Variety Entertainment at the Colston Hall and played dance music for two and a half hours. During the remainder of the dance, which lasted until three o'clock in the morning, music was provided by the dance orchestra of the Portsmouth Royal Marines, resplendent in their colourful uniform. A surprise came at midnight when all the lights were dimmed. When the main lights went up, they revealed a giant cigarette, 12 feet high, from which stepped 13-year-old Connie Matthews, a pupil of Miss Goodwin's, as a symbol of the birth of the new year. Then Henry Hall's band played Old Lang Syne, everyone joining hands and singing in a traditional style. And during the interval, Henry Hall spent half an hour autographing special souvenir cards bearing a New Year's message. A soldier who belonged to the Queen's Westminster Rifles sent an interesting letter to Mrs Ford of Maple Road in Hawfield, a family friend. After expressing thanks for a birthday gift on his 21st birthday, he writes... We went into the trenches on New Year's Day relieving a North Country regiment and were in 11 days. Except for the German snipers, we were fairly quiet. The weather, however, was wretched raining practically the whole time and had to live in mud and water. We bailed out as much as possible from morn to night. Our company was fairly fortunate, but some of the poor chaps were standing in two feet of water. Unfortunately, we lost several of our fellows and a captain whom we all liked. The German trenches were very near in some parts to our line. One poor fellow, early in the morning, went to fetch some water but had not got far before he was shot. A stretcher-bearer went out to bring him in, and he also was shot. Both were killed, and although they were only a few yards away from our lines, our fellows could not fetch them until night. I'm sorry to say one of my chums was killed, too. The night before we left, the Germans began to shell a farm about 60 yards from our trench, and of course some of them fell short. After sending over about 20 or 30, which is quite a small number for the Germans, they stopped. One night, when we were in some different trenches, they sent over 300 shells in one night into a big town behind us. The shells sound most weird going over our heads, especially at night. But with it all, we managed to keep up our hearts. It's a sad heart that never rejoices. We got into trenches again Sunday morning. All of us have plenty of good things sent out to us. In fact, some get too much. Christmas Day was quite a surprise, for on Christmas the Germans began to sing in their trenches and arranging lights on the parapets of their trenches. We sang carols, and very soon we heard them calling out, Englishman, very Merry Christmas. We shouted out, Return, and shortly after... One of our chaps left the trench and went halfway, exchanged his cigarettes and souvenirs. They gave him several little things and told him they would not fire on the next day if we did not. So on Christmas Day we had a private truce and nearly all of us chatted to them. Uh, And I even got a German to give me his hat in exchange for my balaclava. Some of them were very decent fellows and spoke English well. They said they wished the war was over. 
just in. Production at Santa's workshop this year was said to have been down quite considerably due to Covid. Why? Because many of his workers had to elf-isolate. Back in the day facts. On the 19th of December in 1981, the RNLI Penley lifeboat Solomon Brown was lost in the night with all her crew while trying to rescue the Union Star of the Cornish coast. On the 21st of December in 1620, the Pilgrim Fathers in the Mayflower landed in Massachusetts. Also on the 21st of December, but in 1846, the first major operation in the UK using anaesthetic was performed by Robert Liston at University College Hospital, London. On the 22nd of December in 1894, French Army officer Alfred Dreyfus was found guilty of selling military secrets and sentenced to be transported to Devil's Island. He was later found innocent and released. Also on the 22nd of December in 1960, the millionth Morris Minor, the first British vehicle to reach this milestone, came off the Oxford production line. In the Cornish village of Mousehole, the 23rd of December is celebrated each year as Tom Borcock's Eve. The story says that many years ago, the weather left the inhabitants of this fishing village facing starvation, as the seas were too rough for the fishing boats to set sail. One local man, Tom Borcock, braved the bad weather to go out and returned with a catch of seven types of fish that kept the villagers alive until the storm abated. The fish were cooked in a large traditional pie known as a stargazy pie because the heads of the fish stick out of the crust and look upwards towards the sky. To this day, locals eat stargazy pie on Tom Borcock's Eve and sing a song to praise this hero. Also on the 23rd of December, but in 1888, Dutch painter Vincent van Gogh, in remorse for having threatened Paul Gogan, cut off part of his own ear with a razor. And on the 24th of December, in 1828, the trial of William Burke, the murderer known as the Body Snatcher, began in Edinburgh. His co-conspirator, William Hare, escaped by turning King's evidence. And now, this is the final show of 2020. Thank you all for your support and generous comments. I've really enjoyed doing this show and I hope you've enjoyed listening to it. For this show, I'd like to thank, for their voices, Sam Vernon, Simon Green, Marcus KP and Steve Shepard. I've got loads of really interesting stories lined up for next year, so don't go anywhere. And remember, if you want to get in touch with me, you can. I'm on Facebook and Twitter using the tag at BacktrackerUK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or alternatively, you can email me at info 
at backtracker.co.uk. And remember to leave a rating and a review if you can, because it all helps. And don't forget, it's best to think of 2020 like a panto, because eventually it's behind you. Wishing you all the best for 2021. Take care, guys, and look after each other.